0: The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement, which is entirely responsible for its content. Welcome to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement. Off the Shelf gives a voice to commercial service and product companies selling in the federal market. Roger speaks to members and government officials about procurement policy trends, innovations, and debates. Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio, fifteen hundred AM. Now your host, Roger Waldron. Today, my guest on Off the Shelf is Tom Siste. Uh Tom is Vice President and Chief Legislative Counsel for SAP. And Tom, welcome to the show. Thank you, Roger. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, I'm I'm looking forward to the conversation, um, and I know today we're going to cover a number of topics, um, whether it's commercial item contracting, um, you know, cyber and supply chain. Re- risks chiefly are some stuff we're going to talk about. Let's just start with commercial item contracting, something near and dear to our hearts. And, um, you know, the big thing is within the last 10 days, um, the U.S. court uh, Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit here in D.C. issued a major government contracts decision in the Palantir case. And the Palantir case really revolves around yeah, the determination whether you're to acquire that or commercial items that could meet the requirement or modified commercial items that uh, could meet the requirement and the government's sort of obligation to do its due diligence um, in making that determination and the fact that there's a preference for the acquisition of commercial items. Um, so in this case, the Army uh, originally issued a solicitation for a distributed common ground so- system army increment two it's the army's primary system for processing disseminating uh, multi-sensor intelligence and weather information um they issued it as a not as a commercial item contract um it was a research and development contract using part 15 um and it was a single award contract palantir um had talked to the army and uh that had, had expressed that it had a commercial or a hybrid commercial product that could meet the requirement. Um, ultimately, Palantir challenged the, the Army's determination uh, to do a non-commercial item contract, it went to JAL. then went to the Court of Federal Claims. The Court of Federal Claims um, upheld the protest, cited with Palantir that right. the Army did not document and make its determination consistent with FASA, the requirements of FASA. The government, uh, the army, Department of Justice appealed to the to the Circuit Court, and here we are. We got the decision, and the Circuit Court uh, sided with uh, the court of upheld the decision, the judgment by the court of claims, and and basically said the uh, the government didn't do its due diligence with regard to commercial item uh, determination uh, or not to, to acquire via commercial items. So, Tom, what you as a one of the folks back in the day? Now we're going back. Over 20 years, worked on the Hill, worked on FASA, was involved in all those discussions while you were a staffer on the Hill. Um, you know, it's, it's like FASA is more relevant now than
1: it was then. What do you think? Well, I think it's just as relevant <laughs> as it was then. I think it's the, the main point of the decision. Um, I would say that they, in a way, I, I when you were describing the case, I thought, well, in a sense, they... Did do their due diligence, they just didn't follow their due diligence. If you think about it, um, the case really does – it goes into an interesting discussion of what FASA says. And it says that the government should state its requirements to the maximum extent practicable in terms of commercial items if its requirements can be modified to meet commercial items or if commercial items are not available, non-developmental items it should to the maximum extent practicable seek to do that. Um, in the case, uh, the army did do some review of what's in the marketplace. At the same time, there was there was a, an RFI or two issued and Palantir notified the R, uh, army that this requirement actually um, could be fulfilled with commercial items to, to a great extent. Uh, the Army seems to have moved forward and not looked at its uh, another army organization that had reviewed it. I think MITRE was involved in that as well. Yes, yep. And um, and just went ahead with the sole source. So I think you know the single immediate- award contract. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The, uh, the correct single award. I think the the lesson is that you avoid the law at your peril in a sense. Um, there's an interesting twist. To this, or dimension to it, if you will, in the sense that one of the uh, points for appeal was that um, the uh, the government said, "Look, um, you're re- imposing a requirement on us to document. We don't have in the statute a documentation requirement." And I think the circuit's pushback to that was, "You're right. You don't have to document, but when you deviate." In such a way, even uh, under the arbitrary and capricious standard, you have to explain yourself when you have a record that shows that um, you were informed of the existence. They were put on notice. Right. Commercial capability. There yep. was commercial capability out there. Your own uh, review talked about some of this. Then, you know, you really you have to tell us what you're doing um, and you can't just leave it like hanging out there. When you're confronted with that record, so so, you know, in that regard, it, um,
0: you, do you think? I mean, does it? I guess, in a certain sense, to me, it just just re, more than reinforces the preference for for commercial items. It's like agencies at their peril ignore the marketplace,
1: right? Is that fair to say? I, I think it is fair to say. I mean, there are other aspects of commercial items. I'm sure we'll get into today. But the intent – you have to go back into the – you know, what was thought in the day, if you will. I mean the uh, – uh, when acquisition reform was taking place back in the late 90s, uh, there was a, a drive um, by the government to support basically a dual-use industrial base relying on the market to meet its needs where appropriate. Um, we've talked about this before. Uh, the government, things had changed, the Cold War was over, all of that, and the government um, really stood to benefit by leveraging the research and innovation expenditures of the private sector um, so that it could free up funds to address more specific government-unique, military-unique, if you will, needs um, that, that may exist. So that, that law, the laws that implemented that have not gone away.
0: Right, so, but but it
1: seems to me it's um
0: when you stop and think about it it's um it's 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 visionary or what were you got when you were working on this the folks what what were you thinking because this is a situation that has provided an analytical framework right and a preference in law for commercial items that is you know that stands the test of time it's a framework through which, um, you know, procurements now till kingdom come, in a certain sense, can apply, and it and, in, and now it's even more relevant than it was at that time because, again, innovation, you know, technology solutions are much more are fundamentally driven by the marketplace. Where back in the day, in the '80s, right '70s, '80s, the the, the department and the government drew, you know. Pushed a lot of innovation, and that that's sort of flipped on its head. Were you guys ahead of your time, or did you see this change coming? You know, and just speak to the you know the sort of univers- universality of this ongoing framework, and and what you think it means for future procurement.
1: Well, I think the senators and congressmen working on this were um, they benefited from significant research that was out there. There were studies saying that government unique requirements were really claiming an inordinate amount of the acquisition dollars and that uh, in a changing environment where the government isn't necessarily um, the main driver of innovation and what could be foreseen as the driver of innovation, that something had to change. Remember um, back in the day, uh, the government also had unique requirements. There were concerns about access to information, providing uh, intellectual property of the government, and then having exposed, there were a number of different issues uh, uh, coming to the fore at that time, and I, I, I think that it's important to recognize that the foundational legislation, both in FASA and Klinger-Cohen, right, um, focused on recognizing it. Well, it wasn't a mandate that you must use commercial because there was an anticipation where government needs might drive something other than commercial. And you didn't want to handcuff the government, but it was to the maximum extent practicable. I mean, that was that was the phraseology. It's what appears in sta- in regulation uh, for a reason that you should you should lean toward or prefer it. But we also recognize that time marches on, things are going to change, and we're going to see that we're seeing some of those changes today, concerns that um, were probably not anticipated or not anticipated to have some of the issues attached to them that they had in the past, some of the cyber issues, for instance.
0: Right, and we'll get into that in a little bit in the show, the, the tension between the growing you know, focus, not even growing, just the continuing you know, ramping up of cyber and supply chain risk um, awareness, and you know, assur- attempts to create assurance in that area mm-hmm. versus the commercial marketplace, and what where that may or may not be going. Mm-hmm. My guest today is Tom Sisti. Tom, when we come back, let's talk. Continue before we get into the cyber supply chain risk stuff, and and then ultimately that tension between commercial and cyber. Let's just continue a little bit of our conversation on on commercial. Um, and talk a little bit about you know uh, you know commercial supplier agreements. That's a fairly technical area, but it goes to the schedules. The schedules are a commercial item contract, and that again sort of reinforcing or rediscovering in a certain sense the preference for a commercial item. Mm-hmm. My guest today is Tom Sisty, He is vice president and chief legislative counsel for SAP. You are listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio, fifteen hundred AM. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. Today, my guest is Tom Sisti, Vice President, Chief Legislative Counsel for SAP. We're talking uh, commercial item contracting. We're talking talk some cyber supply chain risk, um, probably at some point talk about the e-commerce, Section 846 implementation, just where that is and the status of it. Um, but uh, when I took the break, I mentioned commercial supplier agreements and um, in the actually, in the context of the GSA schedules program, the largest commercial item contracting program out there in government. And for those of you who aren't familiar with that, and those of you who have sort of forgotten the history of it, uh, back about two years ago, GSA um, deviated from the standard far clauses that created presumption for commercial terms and conditions. Uh, By changing the order of precedence in this clause, I know this is fairly technical, but it's very symbolic of the government's sort of, I guess, not schizophrenic, but it's ambivalence, I think, just historically, and probably always going to be there, with commercial item contracting versus government unique requirements. So GSA responding to some of his customer concerns uh, with regard to some commercial terms, Flipped the order of precedence and put essentially commercial terms and conditions at the bottom of the barrel, just above the signature page of the contract, which meant that under the schedules uh, for commercial companies, all government terms and conditions were applicable, um, essentially, or operative. Uh, and to the extent they had any conflicts or had any commercial terms that, that the government could have taken advantage of, could lead to lower pricing, that sort of thing. So those were essentially uh, lower in priority and would not be operative. You know, the coalition and many others raised questions about the consistency with the underlying statute. You know, GSA ultimately said they would, to its credit, would go through a rulemaking process on it. Um, We submitted comments on it. um, And ultimately, GSA essentially changed its mind um, to its credit again and reverted the the. Uh, order of precedence back to where it was under the standard FAR clauses, you know, putting again back into operation the commercial terms and conditions while at the same time doing a couple of procedural things to address the government unique requirements. So it was kind of a win-win at the end of the day. But your thoughts on that, to me, again, it, it sort of reflects that uh, under, uh, you know, ongoing sort of despite the statute besides 20 years in place that, Tension between commercial commercial terms and conditions, government unique terms and conditions
1: you know, I, I think it was interesting what was interesting at that time, also, is and we go back a few years, there was this growing pressure, growing concern, to make the government marketplace attractive to non-traditional firms, to innovative firms coming into the marketplace. Um, those firms will come in, at least in part, if incentivized to do so and one way to incentivize them to do so is to make the environment as familiar to them as it can be when you invert if you will the terms and conditions the order of precedence for them you you create something that's tremendously unfamiliar to people who haven't been working in this space for a long time they don't have exposure to the FAR and and to all the overlying compliance statutes that attend a government acquisition. So um, needless to say, this struck a lot of vendors in the community as very odd. Uh, Moving back, I think is important. It's a good change. And I think it also reflects really the open thinking over at GSA that they listen. GSA does listen to its Suppliers, I think it's reaching out and trying to engage in that partnership with them. You see this in other uh, aspects. We might get into today. Yeah. About well, finance. it's
0: interesting. So, and actually, I'm, <clears throat> you know, listening to, to your response. It's sort of also. When you say GSA is listening. You're absolutely right. GSA is listening. But uh, the CA, the commercial supplier agreement um, experience also is instructive with regard to GSA's role in the market. When you stop and think about it, it's trying to balance uh, its customer requirements, the customer unique terms and conditions versus commercial terms and conditions and trying to find that right balance. And that's not that's not an easy thing to do in the position they're in. And you could see from the CSA, you know, sort of let's try to address the customer concern and did it overreach a little bit? So then they try to rebalance it. You know, it's, um,
1: you know, again, it's, it's an interesting place to be in the marketplace. Well, there's a subtle dimension to what you're saying, and that is we tend to look at the government as the government or the, and the other side, the private sector. And GSA is in a, in a challenging role as not only representing itself as an agency, but rec- representing the different needs of various customer agencies. These agencies have their own mission requirements, their own um, levels of sensitivity, if you will, about compliance and trying to rationalize all of that across the breadth of the federal government. It it is a challenge. And that's why, um, you know, it, it is important that we have GSA there in the midst of this to try and work through some of it. And that
0: actually, so I'm going to hold off on the cyber and supply chain for the next segment and let's just because we're talking about GSA, its role as a market maker and trying to balance those interests, it's a perfect segue for talking a little bit about the implementation of e- Section eight forty
1: six mm-hmm. in e commerce and you know just your sense where are we on that? I think uh, you know I think you have to go back a, a couple of steps on this and recognize that you know I, remember eight eight forty six it was the defense authorization bill. Prior years, defense authorization, 2018, though. right? Mm-hmm. Yep. And then, uh, it, it set out, uh, a, a sort of an implementation, a series of implementation phases that GSA was to go through. Um, uh, one would be just, uh, and, and listening sessions, uh, phase one, uh, was, I think within th- 90 days, 90 days, right. uh, after enactment, um, it it would uh it would involve listening sessions where industry uh representatives would come in discuss some of the characteristics uh of of the electronic commerce environment then a year later um uh they would uh, submit a plan and providing specific recommendations which you know was sort of uh a little out of step in my mind because you were still pulling in the thoughts and recommendations of industry in this process. And then right. at the same time, coming up with some, some legal, uh, market rep, um, recommendations, right. um, it, right. it would require market analysis. Um, and then there's a, fir- a third phase, um, uh, not later than two years after the submission of this plan, uh, OMB is to issue guidance. What I thought was interesting is, um, again, a great example of how people are listening uh, is how GSA held its listening sessions um, and recognized that, wow, there are different dimensions to the electronic commerce market. We tend to think of it as either, you know, a a vendor who offers many products you can buy online through them or some of the uh, multi-supplier online platforms that exist out there, but they're are also um, purchasing tools that exist that kind of uh, cut across, if you will, the different type of platform offerings to maximize um, the value of the product purchase depending on the criteria that drive that purchase for the government. And I think that's where we are right now uh, in in the 846 uh, scenario. We're trying to figure out, okay – uh, how do we make sure that we account for the various laws, you know, by American trade agreements? Um, how do we uh, 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 accommodate uh, socioeconomic provisions? How do we even accommodate supplier uh, cyber compliance? Right, and counterfeit issues mm-hmm. and,
0: as well. And it is, it's, you, you make a good point. It's like I think GSA recognized that there are multiple – Flavors. They even identified three different types of mm-hmm. e-commerce platforms: a traditional marketplace, uh, the uh, you know, concept we are, everybody thinks about when they think about this, the e-commerce platform, which is really like a company having its website and selling exactly. its products under sort of its name, and then thirdly, the the you know, Travago kind of concept where there's software that sets business rules and goes out and finds stuff for you for you, almost like the artificial intelligence piece of it at some point right. that could evolve to um so GSA's um in it's uh to your point is in its um market research phase and they're supposed to come up with a plan in uh, the coming year and um uh do you th- where do you think they're going to go with this? so you know do you think they're going to try to make it as open as they can with all the different potential solutions?
1: Well, the statute says yes, and I'm sure they are looking to do that. I think we have some other um, atmospherics surrounding it, not not GSAs, but just legislative things that are popping up now that um, may have implications for it.
0: Right. And that's a great place to stop, Tom's, because I think you're talking cyber and supply chain risk. Um, so when we come back, we'll pick up and sort of conclude with a couple thoughts on e-commerce and go into the cyber and supply chain risk conversation. My guest today is Tom Sisti. He is Vice President and Chief Legislative Counsel for SAP, and you are listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. Today, my guest is Tom Sisti. Tom is Vice President, Chief Legislative Counsel for SAP. And we're talking about um, some of the key issues, opportunities, um, trends in government procurement a little bit, just some case law in the first segment, a little e-commerce in the second. And just to finish off some thoughts on e-commerce, one of the things that, you know, I know GSA, you know, they're in that year phase where they're doing that market research, talking to all these folks that you mentioned in the last segment. And one of the things they were talking about doing, they, they floated the idea of doing a pilot, um, do you have any thoughts what they need to be thinking about as they consider a potential pilot?
1: Well, they're supposed to be doing a pilot at some point. I think um, this came out in the second uh, industry day that they held. And that is, first of all, what is suitable for a pilot? You know, are there products that have attended to them certain risk elements that you don't want to inject into the pilot program for fear of disruption? disrupting the study of the concept. Does that make sense? You know, yes. This idea of, um, okay, I don't want to have too many things to deal with um, that that could sort of pollute the analysis. You also have to decide, like, what model are you piloting? Because if you pilot a particular approach, there are were, there were three approaches that they've zeroed in on in their implementation plan. If you pick just one, you are not engaging sort of horizontally in a in a value analysis across the three models. You also run the risk of positioning that model unfairly in the market, right. if you will, mm-hmm. uh, such that when a decision is ultimately made, you have basically an embedded solution. Um, and an environment's very dynamic. I mean, we're seeing that. We tend to think of things as very static. Okay, this is the way we're buying, but these things change pretty quickly. The mechanisms for change, uh, for for acquisition change uh, uh, over time very, very quickly, and it's, you don't want to lock yourself in and always be chasing a solution. I think it's also still unclear uh, some of the compliance accountability. Um, how do you deal with, count- in some models, if you're, offering, if you have a platform that's offering multiple suppliers, how do you identify um, counterfeit products? How do you identify if there's an IP violation? How do you identify by American Trade Agreement Act issues and socioeconomic issues? What does the government do um, when it has a problem with these? Now, some models would say, okay, well, that's between the government a government purchaser and the supplier. Well, you're going to have a lot of government purchasers making these kind of transactional decisions. That's not the way it's done. Say on the schedules where you the companies op- and
0: products have been vetted, trade yes. agreements are compliant, et cetera. There's government contracts in place and enforced terms and conditions and responsibilities on you know on the contractor party. Um, so GSA is acting to try to create a market that has, integ- you know, has, has integrity, right? That people can rely on. Right. I it goes of- go to
1: the, it <clears throat> goes to the element of value measurement because right. you have to con- consider that when you're assessing the value you're obtaining from the. So yeah, and matter. I, you know, I
0: worked, you know, as many as
1: everybody knows, I worked at GSA for uh, a
0: couple decades, and one of the things that we always, think, you know, with revenue comes responsibility. The role of GSA, you know, in being a market maker, because we did look at ourselves that way, was to ensure that the market, you know, met the customer needs, but also provided sound business opportunities for contractors in the private sector. Mm -hmm. And doing that balance to ensure confidence in the marketplace, um, you know, was a lot of work and something that GSA took very seriously. So it'd be interesting to see how GSA, you know, applies that approach. As it's thinking about you know its customers, but also the contractors out there, mm-hmm. and how this is supposed to work in the context of its pre-existing
1: programs. I, I agree, and I think that you know the certain products we have to recognize the supply chain is globalized now. Um, it's you're not working in, in a wholly domestic supply chain. Um, it is consistent with. The approaches to trade uh, that existed years ago, at the same time, some of the procurement laws in question were put into place, and so you have to say, okay, understanding that globalized supply chain, how do I assess um, value and uh, against risk uh, in, in even the piloting process? So let's let's turn to assurance. And including
0: supply chain risk, cyber, that sort of thing. So you know, and I know there's, and because we've talked about it, there's a big focus on the Hill on this issue in particular. Um, that's in a certain sense the Hill is driving, although the department is very focused on it as well. Right. Um, and it's sort of coalescing around and what looks to be a new framework in federal procurement that's going to be developing over time. Um, so I'm just going to open up, and Tom, what are you seeing?
1: Well, I think we're seeing several pieces of legislation that center on uh, supply chain acquisition risk, um, how the government factors in risk, cyber risk uh, to its acquisition decision making. You know, I don't think we have time to drill into every the specifics of every bill, but if you take it up to a high level we have, I think, at least three bills uh, floating around that conceptually speak to the identification of a risk either with a product or a supplier, the notification of that risk and the response, which might include uh, excluding a product or... From Maybe the federal supply chain, from right? the supply chain, or even the supplier, I guess at some point there are. um in, in one one bill, we're talking about uh, uh, cascading that across agencies, uh, so that agencies would have to consider it, uh, the the determination and implement it, and uh, in some instances, there's the. There is a process whereby the risk is identified, risk being either product or vendor. The recommendation, an entity would make a recommendation. The uh, recommendation would be acted on by um, a, a relevant uh, lead agency for certain segments, for instance, like, say, DOD for... for. Uh, the Defense Department, Homeland Security for somebody else. Uh, and then uh, an order might issue. And in the process, you would have, say, at the recommendation phase, a period of time where a vendor could push back and say or not even push back, but just say, "I think you're wrong. At the order phase, the vendor would have a period of time to um, say uh, that, "Hey, I think you've got it wrong." that would be it right there so you're talking a about test the gao it mm-hmm. wouldn't be right you know, you're in
0: or you're out and it, so in a certain this assurance sort of framework is all about identifying risks and addressing them in a context that the only way i would analogize it it's so it's like like institutionalizing you know the analysis and review of this risk and addressing you know the eligibility of people to you know participate in federal procurement and analogize it to you know, basically based on analysis and reports, Congress saying you see Z- ZTE, uh, the government can't buy that, or Huawei, those kind of things, right? That were in the you know in this in this year's 2019 NDAA that you know Congress made those decisions. But they're also thinking ahead that they're not going to be making all those those kind of decisions on an ongoing basis, but to create a framework where the executive branch can do that. Is
1: that fair? Um, well, or am I, think, I overstating it? I think it's a little overstated because I think that there's been a determination with respect to those companies versus uh, an identification of a risk attendant to a product Okay, because of the supply chain. So I don't think there's like an it, So a product could be flawed. It's not anything right. like those, they, you know, those right. hey, companies wait, that, have a... That motivations have a are in made. question, right? Right. Uh, yeah. so, so I think it... In that respect it's a little different. But um you know, the these these provisions, um, some of them speak to being uh, applicable government wide. It's not clear how that will affect things like the e commerce solution. Right. Because um Right and on that note, let's we have to take a break,
0: Tom. <laughs> when I come back, we can talk some about that tension between the current commercial item framework and the FAR mm-hmm. versus, you know, this growing, this growing uh, uh, desire, in fact, coalescing around addressing, you know, assurance and supply chain risk and, you know, the frameworks and processes that are going to be created around that. My guest today is Tom Sisti. He is vice president and chief legislative counsel for SAP. And you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio, 1500 a.m. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. Today, my guest is Tom Sisty. He is Vice President and Chief Legislative Counsel for SAP. And Tom, you know, in the last segment, you described like on the Hill, there's some, there's three, at least three different pieces of legislation floating around that would create a framework for the review of risk uh, based on the products or companies. Um, potentially, you know, being part of solutions to the federal government and the government's now creating this framework and process for assessing the risk of a particular product and determining basically whether that product can be purchased by the government or not or offered to the government or not. Um, an interesting dynamic, it's um, an approach that, you know, sort of modifies commercial item contracting in a certain sense, right? You've got the preference for commercial item contracting, but... You know that preference; it will be subject to, you know, this framework as well in the review by the government. Is that fair to say?
1: Well, um, I think it's interesting that the language says to the maximum extent practicable the I commercial item language, right? Right. So it, it, it's it's good. It's one of the reasons why you don't mm. you don't have these black and white mandates. Because I, I think... Because those,
0: those guys back then on that Stafford's, they had foresight, huh? Maximum no, and members had, had the foresight. Oh, yes, I know. I'm staffers just kidding. Stafford's only I mean, operate... staffers. Research, yeah, that's right.
1: Know, carry out the wishes. Call me old school. But right, right. You know, <laughs> uh, Stafford's carry out member wishes. Yeah. The, uh, but, it, you know, it is... Um, it does present an interesting twist. And um, I think it raises some concerns about how the vendor community attempts to respond to this because if you have moved into the commercial sphere you're in a globalized environment the the market needs a chance to be able to transition so how do you put in place mitigation schemes to allow vendors to not just fall off the table or products to not just fall off the table, especially if they're vitally needed by the agencies. Um, while the transition takes place, it's an open question. A lot of this is because we haven't seen final really what the final legislation or multiple pieces of legislation will look like. But it's something that probably should be considered. How do you make this all work together? We were talking about before the how do you, how does this impact the e-commerce platform. Um, you almost have it in the context of other um, acquisition programs like category management. Um, you have to. You have multiple vectors of procurement activity that are off and running. How do you synchronize them so that you don't proceed down a path and then find yourself? Oh wait, I'm tripped up. Because I have this other overlay that I haven't accounted for,
0: right? So maybe that means it goes to, for for example, in the e commerce world, what's the you know what's the suitability of products? that mm-hmm. should be eligible for purchase there. Should it be a product that's eligible for purchase via e commerce platform, or is that something that we want to just the government wants to be careful about and not necessarily go down that? Down that path just because of that cyber risk. of Plugging something, you buy something on an e-commerce platform, you plug it, you provide it to as GFE, gets plugged into a network or whatever. Next thing you know, you're compromised. Is that well, the, is that
1: the concern? I think that's part of the concern. I think if you're a vendor, you're an integrator, and you're installing a network of some kind or a system of some kind, and you're given GFE, uh, and then there's a uh, some kind of catastrophic failure. Uh, there's a lot of time and resources spent in in the forensic operation to identify the breakdown, to uh, identify the fault, and all those things. So that's that's a component certainly. As uh, you you have that, you have to also I think uh, address how again you're going to put controls in place up front for um, making sure the products that you receive are actually the products you want, then it's, there's a question about data, you know, um, how is that secured? We, we tend to always talk in terms of it, but if, um, you know, hundreds and hundreds of pallets of water and toilet paper are being sent to a given location that might indicate military activity, you know, and, and, how do you secure
0: that? Well, that supply chain, so what you're saying in a certain sense assurance of supply chain just doesn't go to what's being bought, it's to how it's being bought as well. Is that exactly. fair? Exactly.
1: Locations and things like that.
0: Yeah, any um yeah, so I know there's a couple of, I we're running out of close to run out of time. I know there's legisl- you know part of the the NDA for this year's 2019, you know, to this point, you know, on a related sort of area you know, had a provision with regard to, uh, you know, source code. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a bit about what that and what that means, what that represents?
1: Well, uh, recently passed uh, bill speaks to, or now it's law, uh, speaks to um, the reporting of any uh, exposure of the source code uh, to foreign governments or uh, foreign third parties acting on behalf of foreign governments. And you know the devil now becomes the details. So
0: just so I, so it's clear, it's that it's the concept that if you want to sell your source code to, I mean your software to the federal government or to the DoD or whatever, you have to let the government know or let us whatever know what nation states
1: you have actually provided the source code for that software to. Um, it's a little more right? a little more refined than that. Okay, if it's well. commercial uh, source uh, commercial software and you're not talking about a na- a nation that would be on an I- a DoD identified nation of concern list. Um, so other than nations of concern, not a problem. If it's specifically developed software, they want to know. Um, okay, so who did you show it to, which makes sense, right? It was right. written for, for the agency. And um, if it's a country of concern, they want to know who you showed either commercial or specifically developed source code there. The reporting of that would be on a database available to agencies, uh, to DOD agencies. Uh, it's The SecDef would be, Secretary of Defense would be responsible for. Uh, A uniform uh, uh, overlay to the Freedom of Information Act uh, in the sense that uh, any requests for this type of information would be treated um, the same in a uniform way, except um, that you still have FOIA applicability. Um, the legislative history to that provision says that there's it's not really envisioned. This stuff is going to be releasable under FOIA. Right, no, yeah, it's, it's a bef- before right.
0: It commercial, mm-hmm, proprietary, mm-hmm. trade secrets. Exactly, so it wouldn't be. It would be protected in any event, right? From from that release, but that's a side issue. The big issue is right is providing you know letting the U.S. government know when the source code under you know the certain criteria where it does apply. Who you've, sh- who you've shown you know, the crown jewels to. Right,
1: right. And the nations of concern list would be developed based upon, I believe, like six criteria mm-hmm. um, that are, are set forth in the statute. The Secretary of Defense would have, the, uh, f- have flexibility to, uh, to identify risk, with flexibility to identify mitigation mechanisms. And again, this kind of goes to what we were talking about before, recognizing the universe as it exists now on a global level, um, how do you provide mechanisms to transition? Um, for instance, if if people are showing commercial code, but they're doing it under a very rigorous uh, software assurance process that's, you know, at company facilities, it's not in country. Um, people, you know, you have stringent requirements for coming in. You can't bring in a pencil and paper, you know, things like that. Um, does that get viewed as different from say, hey, here it is, take a look? Uh, those are the types of things that I think um, need to be worked out in the regulatory process, right?
0: And this really is about the government, you know, being an informed purchaser, right? Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, right? Right. And it goes to security and cybersecurity, right? Yes. Just the things that have been in that tension again between government unique requirements versus the commercial marketplace, the global commercial marketplace out there.
1: Exactly. But, you know, it's interesting, this whole discussion, we, <laughs> there's no opposition. You don't have people saying, yeah, the government shouldn't be, do, shouldn't be doing this. You know, of course, it's. I don't think anyone's objecting to that. It's, it's not a question of, of doing it. It's a question of, OK, how do we do it and make it work? Right. And in a certain sense, it's,
0: you know, the ironiness, iron, irony of some of this, right, or just the, the, the inflection here is that these concerns about, you know, supply chain and risk assurance – Riff, are a result of, in a certain sense, the changes in the commercial marketplace.
1: Exactly. Right. And right. the risks right. that have, ar- have arisen over time. Right. And you've seen it on the private sector side as well. Yeah.
0: And Tom, on that note, um, I want to thank you for being on the show. My guest today has been Tom Sisti. He's Vice President and Chief Legislative Counsel for SAP. And you've been listening to Off the Shelf on Fed News Radio, 1500 AM. You've been listening to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement. If you missed any part of this program, you can hear the entire show or any of our weekly programs anytime at FederalNewsRadio.com. Off the Shelf, only on Federal News Radio 1500 AM and FederalNewsRadio.com. To be
2: your best every day,